healthcare today still does not have enough safety science influence within the ranks. And healthcare is very parochial, if you will, in often healthcare looks to themselves for answers. The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. Today we welcome Terry Fairbanks. Terry is Vice President and Chief Quality and Safety Officer for MedStar Health. He oversees and leads patient safety, infection control, and quality of care across the system. Prior to this, Dr. Fairbanks held a number of quality and safety-related leadership roles with MedStar. He joined the system in 2010 and started the MedStar Institute for Innovation. He established the National Center for Human Factors in Healthcare, a unique system safety engineering program that has become one of the largest of its kind in the U.S., Dr. Fairbanks was heavily involved with system-wide telehealth programs and oversaw the MedStar Simulation Training and Education Lab. Before joining MedStar Health, Terry was a researcher and an emergency medicine faculty member at the University of Rochester, where he held a number of emergency medical services leadership roles, including medical director and regional quality director. As a board-certified emergency physician, Dr. Fairbanks, Fairbanks practices at MedStar Washington Hospital, Center and serves as a professor of emergency medicine at Georgetown University. Dr. Fairbanks also holds an academic appointment as adjunct associate professor of industrial systems engineering at the University of Buffalo. Terry has served in many national and international advisory roles, including formal consultative roles with the U.S., Australian, British, and Spanish governments. He is a national and international speaker and has contributed to more than 150 publications and co-edited a book on quality and safety topics in healthcare. Dr. Fairbanks has been listed by Becker's Hospital Review as one of the top 50 experts leading the field of patient safety and was recently recognized with the 2021 Robert L. Weir's Patient Safety Leadership Award and by the Medical Society of the District of Columbia's John Benjamin Nichols Award. Welcome, Terry. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be here. So I always like to hear how people got started. So I would just, uh, I I thought I'd start by asking uh, you to tell us about your early career. How did you get started? Well, that's always a fun uh, story because it's it's not the normal targeted route that you think um, many physicians take in pre-med time. Uh, I actually was 28 uh, when I decided to go into medicine. And my career before that was in human factors. And so that's really what's influenced and shaped my uh, way of looking at healthcare safety. When I, uh, when I was 18, I took a gap year to travel. And during that time, I also became an EMT. So, so for years, I was in the EMS field, be- eventually becoming a paramedic. My undergraduate major was math and physics. And then I worked for two years in student affairs, really enjoyed the people component of it. So when I learned about human factors engineering as a, as a field, uh, when I was a couple years out of college, I realized that how much it appealed to me because it was a field that really took the technical engineering um, um, part of my academic background and the, uh, my interest in people and how um, people interact in systems. 
uh, and I became really passionate about it. And I, I was lucky enough to uh, go to Virginia Tech and did a master's degree in industrial systems engineering with the human factors track. And uh, their human factors program then, and this was in the mid-90s, um, at Virginia Tech had a NIOSH-supported um, safety engineering track, which I was in. Um, and I, I really learned a lot from my mentors there, Dennis Price in safety and Walter Weirwilly in, in the transportation human factors area, which is where I did my, my thesis, really was be in, at the time actually became a private pilot at the Virginia Tech Airport. So I was really immersed in how other complex high-risk industries did safety. And, um, and when I thought I was doing a career change, I loved working in the ER. I had gotten a job in the ER as a paramedic and, and at age 28 really thought I wanted a career change to go into medicine, not realizing how much healthcare needed um, needed safety expertise and needed safety science as a, as a field. Um, and as somebody with uh, a year post-master's when I started in medical school, um, I certainly don't see myself as a world human factors engineering expert, but, I, but what the magic was, was that I had um, grown and continued to grow a lot of strong connection points in the human factors field. Um, so then for the next 10 years, I was at University of Rochester, really connected deeply with local experts, found a lot of mentors, um, both at the university at Buffalo, um, but also, uh, which was the closest human factors and industrial engineering um, area, um, academic program to me, but also in the local Rochester area, uh, Rochester Institute of Technology and many people around there that uh, I connected with. And what that did is just kind of brought me the ability to bring healthcare safety people, clinical people, and um, people that I viewed as true safety scientists uh, that understood complex systems uh, together. And that's really been the basis of my um, of how my early career has formed my my later career. Wow. So by the time you were 28, you had studied math, physics, EMS, piloting, become a paramedic. And then decided to become a physician. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's and you know in my medical my medical school class had about two hundred people and there were there were well over thirty of us who were over thirty when we graduated. So it, I think it's it's become more and more common for people to have um, before medical school have other components of their career. Sure, I'm just astonished at how many things you managed to study before you even went to medical school. That's kind of amazing. Well, it did shape the way I thought about things. There's no doubt about that. I'm sure. Yeah. And so you were in your master's degree at that point, you were really focused on system safety, not necessarily in healthcare, but in general, just safety. Yeah, it's interesting. During my master's program, I worked in the local emergency department um, as a paramedic. Uh, so I was certainly observing healthcare and how healthcare did safety, but I was focusing my research and other activities academically in other fields. So it really was a slow evolution for me to really understand what I eventually began to realize was a deep gap in connectedness. I think healthcare today still does not have enough safety science influence within the ranks. And healthcare is very parochial, if you will, in often healthcare looks to themselves for answers. I see. Yeah. And so um, I also think about human factors and safety science as 
a lot of overlap, but not a complete overlap. There's a lot of safety science. I think that human factors people aren't as exposed to, and there are human factors methods that the safety science folks don't always know. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And that that's been, as I, my career has evolved, I've really tried to maintain my role as a student and to learn other areas and fields um, that relate to safety. Sure. And so it sounds like, um, so you went to medical school and you became an emergency department physician, but were you always interested in applying what you'd, you'd learn and observed about safety in the healthcare world as you began to practice as a clinician? Absolutely. Um, even during my, uh, during medical school, I, I was, I connected with a faculty member who was doing observational studies, um, really good ethnographic work in, in the healthcare setting. Um, and two of my earlier, my, I think my first two medical publications were hers, um, as a medical student. And then in residency, um, I connected with the quality and safety leaders in, uh, at the university hospital where I was. And as a resident, um, became involved in some of their system work and then later as a faculty, uh, faculty member. So I always had an interest. Certainly I, I can't say that I started out with a vision to build a human factors healthcare system that, that really evolved. I mean, a, a center that evolved over time, but without a doubt, as soon as I was immersed in healthcare, I recognized that this would be um, where I could really find an academic niche and make a difference. Very cool. And then, so it seems like as you're somewhere along the line, you connected with the resilience engineering and the NDM folks. Is that right? Do you remember when you first became kind of aware of these more niche? Yeah. Um, I think I would gi- I'll give um, Bob Weir's credit for, um, for connecting me into that field. And um, many, many of the connections that I still today maintain Really, I give credit to Bob for bringing me into that world. And that was probably, I started working with Bob and identified Bob as a mentor in the early 2000s. So I would say it was as he, as he discovered that world um, in, the, in the mid to late 2000s is probably when I started to enter those worlds. Terry, I'm, I'm wondering if we go back to those early days where you had some exposure and then you were also working uh, as a paramedic. I'm wondering if you have any stories from those days where it became apparent to you because you were on the inside and you were practicing uh, that these kinds of issues were happening. Uh, do you remember any particular stories where there was a, a, an incident that you saw or perhaps a a safety violation that you saw um, and then what you did about that? So. So you could recognize these things, but was there any way for you to do anything about it? And when you were also a practicing paramedic, yeah. I, um, so I certainly recognized things, and I think as as my um, time in the EMS field evolved, I felt more empowered to affect change. Um, and and as you're implying, my early work in healthcare safety was definitely in the EMS world, um, even before medical school. Um, you asked for an example. I can think of uh, one stark example where um, uh, we did change something at the local level uh, to try to fix it. But they, you know, the, when you give paramedics give many cardiac and other um, emergency medications, as you know, that's the distinction between an EMT and a paramedic is that level of advanced care. 
And um, so a paramedic ambulance carries medications. And, and um, one of the, there's a lot, there are a lot less controls historically anyway, that in the EMS, in the ambulance that might exist in the hospital, like um, computer uh, controlled drawers that only open a drawer with the exact medication that's authorized for the patient to to limit the opportunity for error. Of course, that creates other error modes, but that's all for another day. But one of the problems was that the there was a very, very subtle visual difference between a bag of normal saline fluid, which is just salt water that's given at high rates to replace fluids through the IV, and a similar bag that has medication added to it. And those bags with medication added to it can injure or kill a patient if they're given at a high rate. So obviously it's critical to keep those two those two separate. And this was years ago, but in the EMS agency where I was at the time, uh, we had a near miss with that where the wrong, um, the wrong fluid had been hung. And what I saw the managers do at the time was really focus on educating the paramedics to double check the medication bag before they hung it. And I was able to elevate the idea of creating a visual distinction to to help signal the difference between the two. That was probably the earliest that I that comes to my mind of a of a risk that was noted, probably not responded to in the most effective way from a um, from a change standpoint, from a sustainable change. Now today, I like to say that mitigations have to be both effective and sustainable, um, and sometimes I add feasible <laughs> as a third one. Um, and so obviously after an event in a small agency like that, everyone knows about it. So it may actually be briefly effective to educate everybody to check the fluid since everybody's worried about what they just saw happen, but it's certainly not sustainable. Interesting. And so, so do you think that your sort of insider track, uh, helped you to have some influence there on, on the change? Probably. I mean, as time went on, I did establish credibility as um, a safety advisor in different, uh, e- even when not in leadership roles, um, where we've been, I think, fortunate that um, over the last 10 years, maybe actually probably 20 years since the IOM report came out in 2000, where which was really the first big public record of the fact that medical error was a problem. Um, I think human factors has been a bit of a buzzword in healthcare with a very positive image and um, sometimes the point of fault where people feel like if you sprinkle a little human factors dust on a problem, it'll, it'll be solved. Um, but I, I have established credibility and been able to, I think, have influence because of that credential, um, because of having a formal degree in human factors. I like your kind of characterization that when you're thinking about interventions, you should think about whether they'll be effective, sustainable, and feasible. That feels like a good thing for folks to keep in mind. Yeah, it's a big, I I always try to think in the world I live in, I want, you know, talking points that will be remembered and that are simple. And that is something that people seem to be able to really grasp onto. And and I always tell, because leading safety is really a influence and, and, you know, delegated role. I can't, I can't create the safe practices and processes and systems for for our whole healthcare system. So I want to influence the way people think about it. And in the same breath as saying that, I always say when you're in the room, in the discussion, and you've identified a risk or, or a hazard in, in the environment that you're trying to mitigate, always ask yourself, am I confident that this solution is going to make us safer tomorrow? 
And I think it really helps people when they frame that question and then they think about those three criteria. Uh, it helps them really, even if they don't have a lot of safety science background to even you know understand what kind of human error they're trying to mitigate, often intuitively they can figure out when the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're establishing a goal. The goal is to, to be effective, sustainable, and feasible. Yeah. People do better when they know what they're shooting for. So so tell me, uh, if we kind of fast forward to now, what does the vice president and chief quality and safety officer for MedStar Health do? What is that job? Mm-hmm. Well, um, well, I would have answered this differently two and a half years ago, um, because what's not in my title is um, I- I'm responsible for three main uh, things in our health system. One is quality, one is safety, and one is infection prevention. Uh, so a large part of my job now is helping lead the clinical and you know safety response um, to our, in our COVID pandemic. So I'll just start with that. Although I want, um, we can get to that later. I think, but what my responsibilities are are meds. I should tell people a little bit about MedStar Health. We are a ten hospital system in the Baltimore and Washington D.C. region. We have large academic medical center components. We are Georgetown, MedStar Georgetown University Hospital with a very tight uh, association with the medical school. And we are one of the largest residency and fellowship programs in the country with 1,100 trainees. And we also have a big research institute with 31,000 employees and 2,200 managers. And the reason I, I say how many managers is um, I think of those 2,200 people as the people that are the folks that uh, when you think about leadership influence on safety culture and on the way we practice safety, I think of those 2,200 as my most important people to influence because they they affect it on a daily basis. So, but to answer your question more specifically, Laura, quality in healthcare, we think of it as it's very highly driven by the quality metrics that are defined by regulators and the federal government as being the most important as indicators to how well we take care of our patients. And there are about, there, there are hundreds of them actually, but there are, are about 20 to 30 that are considered those highest priority. So in the quality piece of my job is really focused on making sure that we're doing the best we can in providing high quality care as defined by those metrics. And the safety part of my job that's easier to define, but much harder to do, right? Because that's, um, that is just ensuring that we never ha- uh, cause unnecessary harm to a patient. Um, and, and safety is also about unnecessary harm to visitors and to our associates. We really focus on patient safety. And we carry metrics in that area. Uh, we have lots of leading metrics in safety, but our outcome metrics are, def- we define an injury to a patient and we report every single one to our board in detail uh, when it happens is that when there's been a violation in standard of care that is associated with a moderate to severe injury or death, uh, then we call it a serious safety event. And my responsibility is to put systems and culture and processes in place that reduce the chance that we'll have a serious safety event uh, in our in our setting. And then the third piece, as I already mentioned, is in infection prevention. And infection prevention affects many of our quality metrics um, because many of them are rightfully centered on unnecessary infections in patients. And but it also there's a large safety component in infection prevention. So it crosses both areas. So lots of overlap. 
So um, I, I have a not very well-formed question. I, you know, as a human factors person, I think about a lot of these issues at kind of the bench level, like, but you are in this leadership role where you're trying to influence other people to think this way and implement um, appropriate things. Um, and I just, I wonder if you have any observations or, or lessons learned about moving from the person who's doing the studies or the person in the ambulance who's saying, we need to, we need to change these bags so they don't look just the same to being someone who's trying to influence other people to think this way. Really, that's such an insightful question because that's really been the evolution of my career over the last 10 years. Um, and it's worth, I didn't say when you asked me initially about career development and, and my career evolution, I think it's relevant to say after 10 years at the University of Rochester, I came to MedStar Health now 12 years ago now in 2010. And you said in the intro, and I came because I realized I was starting to get research funding and starting to really build a, a significant research program in applying human factors, but other safety initiatives inside healthcare. And I saw the opportunity to really build on that. So I was looking for a bigger laboratory, if you will. And I was at a single hospital medical center system. They're now much bigger, but at the time they were single hospital. And I wanted to, to come to a bigger laboratory. And MedStar Health at the same time had a 10-year plan where they were prioritizing safety more than anyone I had seen in the country, where it was really the number one focus their CFOs had all committed to the idea that um, you're not going to see return on investment in one year on safety. This is a long-term play. And really, the, the system has been committed to safety in an uh, unprecedented way. So this was the right place for me to come. And my first 10 years here were really developing the National Center for Human Factors in Healthcare, which I'm really proud of. It's now, it's, a, it's an externally funded, grant funded organization now with 30 full-time folks and 30 part-time folks, which combines safety scientists of all different backgrounds in with uh, clinical, applied clinical researchers. So you have uh, doctors and PhDs next to each other doing work together. And it's been, I think, an influential and successful group. And it's also influenced the way MedStar Health thinks about safety. It's given me a good platform inside this organization. This background kind of leads to my answer to your question, Laura, because in the first probably seven years of the time, I was a safety consultant within MedStar Health. So I would get called in. We They would call the Human Factor Center in when they needed a more complex event review, or there had been a something that had gone wrong that they that there was some indication involved socio-technical systems in a heavier way. That I mean, they all do, but in a way that needed more advanced look. And I was really enjoying being one of the reviewers in these event reviews, going in and doing the interviews, taking the pictures, looking at the environment, doing the observations, doing the simulations, etc. And we became really good at it. We, we developed a MedStar Health event review process. We then published it uh, with, with an AHRQ contract and it became part of, um, it became the event review process in what's now packaged as the AHRQ CANDOR program. We influenced the NPSF RCA squared piece that is like how to do a better event review. But then, then I found myself in a leadership role where I now was expecting everyone in the system to follow the MedStar Health event review. And I realized that not everyone was doing it. And there were still old fashioned RCAs going around, uh, going on around our system. And wow, that was, you, you really hit the nail on the head because that's been one of my 
biggest challenges as a leader is how to take something that you may be really good at yourself and get it so that 2,200 leaders and you know 100 safety leaders around the system uh, and people that do safety that aren't necessarily safety leaders like our risk management partners or our compliance partners and our legal partners, everyone had to be good at this. So uh, this could be the whole hour if I told you all the ways we found, and there's probably another hour worth of ideas that I haven't thought of that others could, could help me with. Um, but we started with uh, it was top down where we made sure that our senior leaders were aware of the way this had to be done, board executive leaders, and then the 50 leadership team members, and then the 700 um, senior managers, and then the 2200 managers. And then we created a workshop, a four hour workshop that uh, was open to all people that did event reviews that had heavy components of you know, how to do the interview, what to dress in the interview, how to ask the person to come interview, where you do it, you know, just the ways to make people comfortable and uh, ways to look at things with a, with a safety lens, types of human error, et cetera. Then we did a two hour abbreviated workshop that all of the 220 of the, the 220 senior managers were required to go to um, a 220 a select subgroup of the 700. So then everybody understood what their safety people were doing, even though they weren't doing event reviews, they then understood what was expected. So that's probably a longer answer than you wanted. And boy, we had a lot of challenges and gaps on the way. Um, but now we're at a point where it's not 100%, um, but we do feel like our event reviews around the system are done much more consistently in this, in this special way that we prescribed a decade ago. Yeah, so actually that is a great example. So just to kind of say some of this back. So you start out with senior leaders, made sure they were aware how important this was. Then you created this workshop for people who are doing that, doing these event reviews. And then you had a shorter workshop that you exposed to a select sample of the managers. And so kind of trying to get the word to different parts of the organization in a way that was tailored to their needs and their roles. Yeah, that's a that's that's a, a good summary. And it, it, that last part was because these are the people that supervised the folks doing event reviews, and they needed to understand that this was different than what they had experienced during their evolution of their career in healthcare, where traditional RCAs were done. Right. So I've seen this in other domains as well, where you train the people doing the job, but if their supervisors don't know, if they're thinking about it differently, then it creates all kinds of problems. So it's very easy to focus on one one level and, and, and forget that they're working for other people and they've got to be in the loop too. So Right. And then there's one other, I just would add one other thing is that we had, although I couldn't do event reviews anymore, it's it's too intimidating for people if the chief quality and safety officer comes to do their interview after a safety event. I bet. <laughs> Many members of my team, um, which include people with formal human factors and other safety training are on my team. One approach we did is we offered that members of our core system team would join the event review teams around the system to kind of role model, mentor, or influence in the way uh, these were done. So that was another method that we used as we joined forces. Because our bigger hospitals have their own safety teams that are doing this. They We usually don't join them on, on event reviews. It's usually the smaller hospitals that we would normally join. Nice, nice. Yeah. So some, some kind of mentoring to go along with that. So folks knew they can see how other people do it, and then they can reach out to folks if they want to talk about how something went or didn't. 
Yeah, Terry, it seems to me there's a thread here. If I go back to the beginning of the conversation and you talked about, you know, some of your early publications with the medical ethnographer, uh, and now you're at the point where you've developed programs that do include those kinds of methods. So you mentioned doing the interviews, taking the pictures, the observations. I'm wondering if you can talk uh, a bit about either resistance to that kind of approach, you know, more of the qualitative naturalistic approach that we talk about in NDM and or uh, whether you can talk about um, seeing examples where people sort of get it, you know, that they, they see it happen, they see the evidence that dis uh, you've discovered. And, and so that helps them to realize that these are these are important methods that should be part of the conversation. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting because one of the um, things, a lot of my early work and research was in the emergency medicine or EMS setting where this is probably not technically correct, but in a, in a sense, some variation of, I was almost a participant observer in a way when I would go in to do work because even if I wasn't actually working in the ER that day, I would be doing research in an environment where people were familiar with me, you know, comfortable seeing me and didn't think anything of the fact that, that I was there. And so when I would be there uh, with, in particular, very often Amy Bizance at University of Buffalo was one of my primary partners when we did this kind of work, no one would think anything of it, especially in an academic center where there's often people that you don't recognize that are in the clinical setting because there's, you know, medical students rotate. There's all kinds of transient, if you will, students and others in the center. So really, we didn't have much problem in those early days with that kind of resistance. But we did, especially as we started to branch out and do more and more other specialties uh, where we were more seen as outsiders, if you will, um, and trying to really get in the environment and not have an, you know, an impact, not bias our findings from being there. And we definitely had, had challenges with that, without a doubt. In one particular study, one of a fellow that we had at one point was focusing on communication issues with people whose English isn't a first language when they're a patient. And we thought the translators, the, the interpreter services in the hospital we were studying would be thrilled because we were kind of drawing a spotlight on how important they were, how important the work was. And even though our study was not about comparing their accuracy, that's what they feared. And so they were, they were really resistant to us being there. And it really, at first, uh, we had real troubles with the study because of that. And eventually we gained their trust. And it was okay, but it was a surprise to us. And I think I have other cases like that where you, you go in thinking people are going to be really thrilled that you're there because we're going to shine a light on problems that bother them every day and help them with solutions. But they worry because of this fear of exposure of things that we're not really intending to, to approach. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Ann Miller and I did a metasynthesis, I don't know, it's probably been four or five years or so uh, ago about sort of qualitative uh, work in this field. And there hasn't been a lot, uh, as you well know. It certainly seems to be picking up, but um, I'm wondering if, if you have any perspectives on uh, sort of these kind of methods taking greater hold. Are you seeing that, you know, folks who fund work or folks who supervise work, you know, at the, in the C-suites of these organizations, if they are sort of changing their minds with regard to the value of this kind of work? Well, I'll, I'll, I think I should answer that question twice because the C-suites and the um, people that fund, like the academic environment of funding and publication um, is a real challenge in healthcare. There's a different challenge than the leaders in the C-suites. And there is, without a doubt, a huge bias towards quantitative study methods in the 
medical literature. I'm sure you're both very familiar with this problem. And, you know, I did early on, I realized that I would need to publish qualitative studies in order to be successful in describing the problem well. And so one thing I did early on when I was in Rochester is in um, in their public health department, they had really, really good qualitative research methods courses. So I took a couple of them and did projects as I was taking the courses. Um, And that really helped me see, I think the public health people that do qualitative research have bridged the gap pretty well in um, understanding what journals and what funders understand qualitative research. And then my first few qualitative studies that I published, I wanted to get them into journals that were high impact that really influenced the specialties that I was studying. And I found myself frankly, compromising a little bit in terms of what a purist qualitative researcher would read those early papers of ours and say, I can't believe they're giving a table that shows these quantitative (laughs) results of of, uh, what should be just qualitative interpretation. But we found that we had to do it because we couldn't get past the reviewers without some form of a quantitative assessment combined. So we ended up trying to do mixed method studies and that's where, really where we ended up being able to be successful. Is there, now, there's definitely journals and funders that will that recognize the value and can identify and review appropriately for rigorous methods in qualitative work. But more often, what we found we had to do was um, do some kind of mixed methods so that you had the quantitative component with it. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that really resonates with me, and I think I think it's not a terrible thing. I mean, I think it helps the, as you say, have more impact if more people are open to reading about what you've done. If you throw some numbers in, yeah, I agree. And what I made a really conscious decision early on with my collaborators that we would rather be in the higher impact journals in terms of influence. I'm not even thinking of impact factor as much as you know there. There are a couple journals in the field of emergency medicine, for example, that every single emergency physician in the country gets in the mailbox every month, one in particular. And we really wanted to have our emergency medicine publications be in that journal because we knew that that's that's the audience we wanted to get to. And that is a journal that at the time didn't fully understand or recognize, nor did they have reviewers that could review um, qualitative I'll just say just a plug for the late Bob Weirs that um, Bob is the reason that that journal now has reviewers that understand qualitative research and that they've published some pure qualitative studies since. So there, we, there's change, change is possible, <laughs> but I do think you're right that it's important to get to the right, the right audience. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Bob's influence there. I, I, I do know he actively worked to bring in more people and broaden the way people think about science. So, Terry, you're going to comment on the C-suite folks as well. Yeah, I think the C-suite, like all of us, are rightfully so heavily influenced by the storytelling component of decision-making and justification for important moves. And I, what I find as I need to really influence and move the perspective on things that I feel are important for, our, for this organization, um, as the person responsible for the direction that our company takes in, in quality and safety, that's, that's a large part of my job. I find that data is important, of course. You have to tell the story and justify and demonstrate that there's a problem from a data standpoint. But equally important and arguably even more important is the ability to really tell the story that hits people to fully understand why something's important. 
And so that's a different kind of qualitative work, but really important. So we're not usually doing, you know, a qualitative analysis. And, you know, sometimes we'll use the words like emerging, you know, like emerging trends or things that we see that sound a little bit like what a qualitative researcher might say. But more often we are picking stories that really demonstrate the problem. Uh, and then we combine that with the data and try to demonstrate why something needs to be different. Nice. So I do, I want to talk about COVID. You mentioned uh, the infection prevention, infection control part of your role. And I know this is a topic everyone is thinking about. And I have the sense that particularly early in the pandemic, there's all there's for a long time been a concern about infection in patients, but COVID really raised awareness of infection of the healthcare team um, in ways that people had not, it, it, it wasn't so front and center before then. And I just, I wondered if you would, you know, comment on the way this, this pandemic has, has changed the way people think about, or you think about work and infection control in healthcare. Well, I think it did a good thing. It raised awareness among people that don't think about it every day. I knew how good our infection preventionists were before the pandemic, but the great the great thing is everyone knows how good they are and how, how knowledgeable and skilled they are now. Um, and so protection of healthcare providers in infection scenarios, certainly not something new, and it's what infection preventionists do for a living, uh, where infectious disease doctors are ones that help us understand how to identify and treat infectious disease. They're such an important part of what we do for infection prevention. Um, but there's a whole separate related field that, that's closely supported by infectious disease doctors of infection prevention, usually nurses, it's a certification. Uh, and these folks, their job is to protect patients and healthcare workers from infection. Uh, and the good news is, um, although it certainly has gotten a lot, it's been highlighted in a big way, we really have protected our healthcare workers. The, we didn't know it first, certainly, all, you know, we learned as we went in terms of the ways to protect, but fortunately what we thought would be protective in the N95 masks and eye protection um, as the primary means with also gowns um, and hand washing, the the N95s were protective of COVID. And so over time, we have big numbers So we, in terms of employees, so we can really look at the data. Our employee infection rates have not been over community rates. So we're not, we're not finding that our, our healthcare providers are getting infected at work. They're getting infected mostly when they're in the environments where they don't have their N95s on, often outside of work. So the masking in COVID, when you're taking care of COVID patients, an N95 mask and eye protection has been sufficient to protect. I myself take care of COVID patients every time I'm in the ER. I'll be there this afternoon. After we're done with this, I'm going to do a shift. And I've never gotten COVID, even though I take care of a lot of COVID patients. And that's, that's true of our associates in general. And then when, when you're taking care of patients that you don't think have COVID or that you don't know, we found that the masks have been sufficient. So in our micro study, it really has been a good indication of what keeps us safe for sure. I think that the real effect that has been most striking is the emotional effect. In, in the early pandemic, we didn't know how protective different modes were and we did the best we could and we were lucky that we were right with N95s, but still people taking care of patients would go home you know, take off their scrubs in the garage or the, the clothes they're wearing in the garage, walk up to the shower naked, put it in the, you know, there are all these things healthcare workers were doing, sleeping in different rooms um, than their family. Um, fortunately, we've learned that 
that that's not necessary. So from a wellness standpoint, that's good for our folks. But I think the point you bring up is the unknown over the course of the pandemic has had a major impact on our teams and our nurses in particular, who with the very necessary visitor restrictions, because you can't, you know, when there's high prevalence in the community, unfortunately, as hard as it is emotionally, bringing visitors into the hospital when they might have COVID is just a risk that um, we couldn't give to our patients. So hospitals across the country had to restrict visitor. And that went even during the, especially during the early times in the pandemic, that went for patients who were dying. And so our nurses were the doing their normal care, plus extra care with COVID in their PPE, which is exhausting as it is. And then they were doing the emotional care, being the emotional connection uh, for dying patients between them and their families. And probably many of the people listening to this went through this. And so many people have gone through it and know how much our nurses have done uh, in this area. So I think when I think of the pandemic and the effect on our healthcare workers, I think of nurses first because they are absolutely uh, the most affected by all of this. And then I also, I think of how exhausted they are in their well-being emotionally. I don't think so much about the risk of them getting COVID because we've been lucky and that's the, our methods that we have have been protective for them. And now with the vaccination particularly. Yeah. So I think one of the challenges, at least in the general public is because there was so much uncertainty. Um, some folks thought masks, masks don't help, masks don't work, um, or vaccinations are unsafe. Or how, how did you help people that work in your health system really understand what the best guidance was as it was unfolding as we were learning? Well, um, that's such a great question because that was one of our main focuses. And in any environment, but particularly in a big system where we have 300, you know, sites throughout a region that it can take you three hours to drive from one one site to another and 31,000 people, communication has been absolutely one of the biggest challenges that we've had and making sure that we're getting to everybody with the true story, because we've been working against, uh, as everyone knows, a lot of false narratives that have been in different strings um, of uh, different media modes, etc. And so we've used communication. We did methods like when the vaccination question came up, and we we do um, have a vaccination requirement. We're proud that we were one of the first hospital systems in the country to require a flu vaccination. We were the first in the country to require physicians, because um, often physicians aren't employed historically anyway, but they are private, but they have admitting privileges. We were the first in the country to re- require of our independent private physicians if they want to come to in our hospital to be flu vaccinated. And so we were also obviously fully supportive of the idea that we should protect our patients um, uh, and our other each other from um, COVID by having a mandatory vaccine. And certainly we took the position that our patients, our patients trust us with their care. And when they come for care, they, they expect that they're not going to get COVID from one of our associates. So we did require the vaccination, but we also were very sensitive to the fact that many people that work for us may have only heard a false narrative that might have made them feel unsafe or unsure or feel like they were at risk getting the vaccination. So we put a lot of programs in place. We called it overall Ask an Expert. We engaged with our physicians, nurses, other healthcare providers across the system and made sure that we had a diverse group of people doing that um, because we have a diverse workforce and we knew how important it was that the experts that were out there to, to give the facts and to 
be transparent and to uh, tell the truth about the risks. Also, we really recognize how important it was that they looked like the people that were asking the questions or that they were people, they were experts that others could identify with and could trust. So we really made an effort to have a diverse group of experts, which I'm proud to say wasn't hard because we have a diverse group of physicians and nurses and and others in our workforce. And then we just did lots of different communication modes, town halls, emails, um, uh, screensavers that could be, you know, the screensavers can be pushed out to every computer in in the system, Um, all kinds of other communication modes, including talking points to leaders, asking them to have personal conversations at huddles. Boy, it was a challenge that you you hit the nail on the head with probably one of, uh, if I look back on our management of the pandemic, communication to every single person in our in our organization was one of the most challenging pieces. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine just having followed this, you know, at the community level, I can imagine in a health system, that would be a a real challenge to get everyone on on the same page and moving in the same direction at the same time. Yeah. And actually, let me add one more thought because you brought up masking. Masking was less of a challenge. It's interesting because healthcare workers wear masks every day. It's so routine. Uh, Those that work in the operating room wear masks all day long and, you know, their whole careers, they've done that. And so healthcare workers tend to understand the value of masking. Uh, we, we've also, long before COVID, had lots of diseases where we take care of patients with the disease. We wear the prescribed mask and we don't get the disease. So that hasn't been as much of a challenge. I'm still shocked by having friends and neighbors uh, and even family who deeply believe that masks don't work when I see every day how well masks work. And I, I will say to people listening just that are interested in COVID management, I mean, vaccine and masks. When I get in on an airplane, particularly like I have a friend that just came back from Portugal and Portugal is the, the number two country in the, in the world right now for COVID transmission. So probably half the people on that airplane have COVID, <laughs> don't know it. And they told me that they were the only family on the whole plane wearing masks. So my advice is masking works. And when you're around people that you don't know, and if you don't know them out of COVID, wear a mask. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you. So I know we are uh, running out of time here. I have one just kind of fun question I wanted to ask you before we wrap up. So I know you have studied many things in your career, but if you could instantly become expert in something, what would you choose? Oh, wow. Um, Instant expert in something. You know, I may be biased, but we we just talked about, but it's communication to the masses. I, I don't mean... You know, I often find that when I write an email or I'm in a conversation, I realize I'm not I'm not doing it well and not being clear and I'm misunderstood. And yes, I'd love to great, get great at that too. But but really, how do you influence a large group of people by highly effective communication that resonates with them to move their the way they think about something? That's that's something that um, that I think you know. And I think about the people that are learning about nudge and trying to do nudge. That's something I would love to be an expert in someday. Very cool. Well, thanks for speaking with us today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So on that note, I want to thank you all for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about the Naturalistic Decision-Making Association by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org. Thank you.